0: Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. And I'm Robin. Together, we research and break down complex, even controversial topics facing our society. We always aim to bring you honest analysis backed by research to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported and to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. If you couldn't tell by now, we're human. (laughs) We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. However, our goal isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to build a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that we can address them together.
1: We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way that people have hard conversations, and we think that we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here
0: we suggest getting comfortable, and maybe having a good drink on hand as we move through this Welcome to our fireside. Yeah, no, I've been, I've been a good boy. I haven't been drinking caffeinated coffee except for, uh, you know, break glass in case of emergency situations. Yeah. Um, but I'm trying to figure out what's going on with my lack of being able to sleep. So <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, you got to fix that.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, we haven't. I've been coffee free for except for two days for uh, over a month and um, honestly haven't really felt that much of a difference. Uh, which is weird, and I don't know if it's because of an interaction with ADHD, or mm-hmm. if it's because of an interaction with my ADHD meds, <laughs> or if it's just because I'm weird. Yeah, I, don't, I also like. I, don't have I also didn't symptoms either. I can yeah. take
1: it or leave it. it. Doesn't really matter to me.
0: That's kind of where I am. I used. To, I, I. I still probably could. I could drink it and then go to bed. Yeah, so, and that's. Same. I was drinking like fifty ounces of caffeinated coffee a day. Right. and that's how I that's knew. Not like, good. Maybe I should. Maybe I should chill on that. Yeah, James um, always
1: laughs at me because I will keep a monster open in the fridge, and in the middle of the night, if I get up, I'll just go grab a swig of the monster and pop back in the fridge and go back to bed.
0: Monster. Yeah. Um, interesting. That I don't know. I've never been that extreme, but um, but yeah. So I didn't want dependency, so I have been getting rid of it. Gotten been getting rid of it. And it might just be because of the way I weaned myself off. Like I did three quarters caffeine, then half caffeine, then like quarter caffeine, and, mm-hmm. and then no caffeine. So anyway, anyway, that's not what we're talking about that's not. today. Nope. It's just a chill convo that I'm going to like fade into as we go. It will be cool. Uh, <laughs> maybe. If you're listening to this episode on release day, uh, we are not talking about coffee. No. We, are, we would like to wish you a happy Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, We're taking this week to talk about this new but also not new holiday, uh, what it is, why it's important, and why, like so many other things these days, it is the cause and focus of just such a ruckus in the national conversation.
1: I mean, it's hard to believe, honestly, since Columbus didn't even land in continental North America. But there's a surprising level of support for Columbus and his day, and though... At least in my childhood, Columbus never really even, he never even got his own day because those of us with Norse blood also celebrated Leif Erikson Day on October nine. Probably also not optimal, <laughs> but it has been an official holiday in Minnesota where I grew up since 1931. So we did Columbus Day stuff and we did Leif Erikson Day stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah. Happy European, probably pretty brutal yeah uh, discovery of a new area
1: right although the, uh, the vikings did not last long once they, no, settled they didn't here
0: they left yeah, pretty quick they didn't really want to like they set up a, a temporary settlement and then they're like nah, nah. <laughs> went back <laughs> this is too hard yeah i can't remember that entire story you'd be better to tell it than i would but um we are definitely not talking about Leif erickson day today no. <laughs> Although it is funny because when we were planning this one, I was planning to write like this big buildup, uh, about how we were going to talk about the first European to discover continental North America and like really build it up and kind of mislead people because most people don't know about Leif Erikson. Um, but then I was going to spring the Leif Erikson reference, but you just had to go ahead and have like a personal connection to it. And I just couldn't bring myself to stomp on that. Um, and I do realize that maybe more people know about Leif erikson Day than previously. Although, <laughs> speaking of Leif erikson Day, <laughs> nice. Here's my Icelandic Viking shirt. Yes. Um, but uh yeah, I, I'm I think more people might be aware of Leif erikson Day because of uh <laughs> uh Spongebob SquarePants. Oh,
1: See, I didn't even know that that was a thing until I had to Google, like I was looking up Leif Erikson Day to confirm when it became a holiday in Minnesota, yeah. and I was like, Spongebob.
0: Yep. Yep, yep, yep. So, Robin, happy belated. When by the time this episode comes out, Leaf Ericsson Day, uh, Hinga dinga Dergen. Oh
1: Lord Jesus,
0: <laughs> that is a SpongeBob reference. Please, nobody take offense to that. It's, it's no more not... offensive than the Swedish Chef
1: on the Muppets. <laughs> it's true. Is my it's my favorite.
0: <laughs> I love the Swedish Chef. There's a there's a episode or a, a short where he makes popcorn shrimp. It's probably the funniest, uh, oh gosh, funniest Swedish Chef bit out there. Um. <laughs> anyway, anyway. Wildly off track.
1: Wildly off track. No. Today, today we are going to talk a bit about Indigenous Peoples' Day. Uh, one, because we keep forgetting to mention the holidays that our episodes release on. And two, and more importantly, because there seems to be a pretty deep divide amongst some groups about this particular holiday. So, put your comfy clothes on, get a warm drink, or keep driving to work safely or whatever it is that you're doing when you listen. And allow us to dive into some history. It's been a minute since we've had a nice historical episode.
0: True. Also, we are going to touch on Columbus Day a little bit. We're mm-hmm. not. <laughs> we uh, we <laughs> didn't mention it a lot in the intro, uh, but also uh, we we are going to touch on why Columbus Day exists and why this conversation is probably a little more complicated than some people are assuming.
1: Yeah, it's important context for an episode like this. We, As we were writing this, we we took very specific care to center Indigenous people and the story of Indigenous people in the episode, but we can't talk about why it's controversial without talking about Columbus Day. So
0: Yeah, right. So what is Indigenous Peoples Day? That's what we're going to start with. And for as long as most Americans can remember... Uh, Columbus Day has been the national holiday that happens. Uh, We've been celebrating Columbus arrival in in the Americas since 1792, and it became the official federal holiday that it is in 1934. In elementary school, we probably all took the day to learn about the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, and probably there's an Inye in there somewhere, and I can't remember where it is. It's the Nina. Is it Nina? Uh Okay. So I just don't know uh, but, how to type that on my Mac. Uh, yeah, there's it's like three different buttons, um, which is weird because well, it's not weird. The reason I default to Nina and not knowing that it's Nina is because we learned <laughs> about it in the Ozarks, and yeah. uh, <laughs> or at least I did. And there's not um, a, a a large, massive. Spanish-speaking population right. in the area so that such uh, proper pronunciations would be uh, widely known. So, yes, the Niña, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. Um, and uh, there's a really stupid song that goes along with it that I have actually successfully wiped from my memory.
1: I mostly and have.
0: I'm not going to try to remember it at all. I just know that it's annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, we basically learned that... Uh, Columbus's discovery was (laughs) a complete accident. And we kind of laughed at his fortunate mistake. And we learned that thanks to Columbus um, and his crew, we're all privileged to live in the America that we know and love. Mainly, we're all privileged to live in the United States. (laughs) Because like, somehow Columbus's discovery of the Americas kind of gets taught as columbus established the united states which is in a weird way
1: so convoluted so convoluted
0: yeah so it's it's obviously a very u.s centric teaching of not just u.s white european united states centric teaching of the events surrounding columbus's voyage and and subsequent uh accidental landing in the Caribbean. What most of us didn't learn in school was the name of the indigenous people, uh, the the indigenous people group, I should say, that first encountered Columbus and his crew. And is there an Inye over the end in this one? No. I feel like. There's okay.
1: technically an accent, I think, on the I. But...
0: Okay. So then if it were. Okay. Now I want to make sure because that would change how this is pronounced. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, the the, <laughs> the first group that he ran into, man, now I'm second-guessing my own...
1: I have always heard it said Taino.
0: That's what I think it is.
1: That is what I have always heard. But
0: again, I am...
1: But it is important to remember that this is not a Spanish word. This is an indigenous yeah. word. So, all of the rules that we want to put on it, the, the Euro-normative pronunciation rules that we want to put on it, don't apply. Which is the whole point well, of this episode.
0: <laughs> yep. <laughs> I did just find a video. It's probably in the, in the recording somewhere uh, in the background. It is Taino, at least, according to the one presenter that I just <laughs> heard. Um, so anyway, yes, the first indigenous people that Columbus ran into were the Taino people. Uh, and Columbus wrote in his journal that they would be easy to overcome and would make good slaves. Yeah. He even sent 500 of them back to Queen Isabella as a quote-unquote, gift. We didn't learn that he forced the Taino people to work on plantations and hunt for gold and other treasures that he had promised the Spanish crown and that he had sort of guaranteed were waiting in India. We didn't learn that within 60 years of Columbus's arrival, the native population had plummeted from 250,000 to just a few hundred or that his complete mismanagement of this new Spanish colony saw him returned to Spain in chains in 1498. It cost him all of his titles. Yeah. All of his recognition.
1: And, and that's precisely what Indigenous Peoples Day is intended to correct. As we've come to better acknowledge the grave consequences that colonialism has had on indigenous peoples in the U.S. and worldwide, There has been a growing demand to shift the focus from the colonizer to the history, traditions, values, and experiences of the people that they colonized. And the story of how we got here is just another example of the strength and the resilience and the courage of the Native people. Though people have been voicing concerns about celebrating Columbus' arrival and actions since the 1800s, basically since we started celebrating it. The idea to replace Columbus Day with an Indigenous Peoples Day was first proposed at the United Nations International Conference on Discrimination Against Indigenous Populations in the Americas in 1977. That is a very specific conference name, and we will talk about why very shortly. <laughs> <laughs> but this conference was a pivotal point in the fight for recognition and rights for Indigenous peoples all over the world, and it proved to be a key moment for, North, for Native North Americans especially.
0: So, a little history, a little context that will take us up to this point throughout the history of their interactions, the United States government has taken an assimilationist approach to Native American culture, which is a really uh, a really sanitary word mm-hmm. for eradication. Mm-hmm. The goal has always been to make them less native and more American. Um, whatever that meant at the time to the culture. Now, generally, these descriptors included Christian, <laughs> clothed in, <laughs> in, in Western-style garments. Right, more clothed. Um, yeah, uh, English-speaking and literate. Sometimes it also meant conforming to traditional European gender roles or appearance standards. It was very common for Native boys to have their long hair cut short upon arrival at an quote-unquote indian school um quick side note a lot of the language in this episode is (laughs) like it's coming from western authors writing about something that is outside of their own culture and referencing things that were how they were called at the time so indian school is what they were called that's what they were called Um, yeah there's a lot of (laughs) What would be considered insensitive language. Yeah. We changed it where it was
1: appropriate, um, but where it was important for context, we left it.
0: Yeah. Um, So moving forward in the 1950s, uh, policy was kind of headed back to this assimilationist direction very quickly through a set of policies referred to as termination. Such a great name for... For things, the government is actually very fond of the word termination, uh, because it doesn't carry the same. Um, I don't think it carries the same sort of like bloody context as people associate Oof. it with in their head. Probably Oof. thanks to Schwarzenegger. Right. Um. But like, whenever you finish a contract, you have terminated the contract. Whenever you finish working with somebody outside the government, you have terminated the asset. <laughs> and it's like. It doesn't mean you killed them, but it always <laughs> sounds like it. Um, so anyway, little side note. Through these termination policies, um, the, they officially recognized tribal nations were disbanded. Um, in other words, no longer acknowledged by the United States. The protected trust status of all native-owned lands was removed the government began to dismantle the reservation system and with it the few protections that had been afforded to the Native American nations. Tax-exempt statuses were removed, financial assistance for education, healthcare, and infrastructure ended, reservation land was drastically reduced, and parcels of land were sold to private corporations or individuals.
1: That's the name of the game. Native peoples were encouraged to relocate to cities and urban areas through programs like American Indian Urban Relocation, which promised support in securing housing and employment. Uh, But once they got there, many Native Americans were faced with work and housing shortages that led them directly to abject poverty. Uh, Many of them had a difficult time adjusting to urban life and eventually returned home to whatever that looked like at that point in time. During the termination era from 1953 to 1968, 113 tribes lost their official recognition and nearly 1.4 million acres of land lost its trust status. Um, And in 1968, President Johnson proposed ending termination officially and pursuing partnerships between the United States and tribal tribal governments that would foster self-determination among the Native nations, which... Is such a condescending way to put, let them be the boss of themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, But the resolution never actually officially passed. Um, Every president after that took the same approach, which effectively curtailed active termination until the Bureau of Indian Affairs established formal procedures for recognizing tribes again in 1978, and then the policy was formally repudiated in 1980. 88. So it took 20 years from when President Johnson proposed that we knock it off until Congress actually officially repudiated those policies.
0: <laughs> it, mm, <laughs> I uh, the more I learn about uh indigenous that uh, first nations history in America the more Angry, I get mm-hmm. that it was never taught. Yeah. Like, I can't even say that it wasn't taught better. Like, I can't be angry that it wasn't taught better. Oops, smack my mic. It's that it was never taught. Yeah. I had no idea that up until I was born, and probably continuing to this day, let's be honest, but up until I was born, even that the US government <laughs> was actively shutting down tribes failing to recognize them or at least not not providing a way for them to regain the recognition that they had lost when the government had shut them down.
1: yeah it's it's insane and I have to say like growing up in quote-unquote Indian country is how it was it was put when I was raised but growing up in in Minnesota um, I have I had more education than your average, elementary school kid about Native American culture and uh, even the stories and the legends and the history, but I still was never taught how the United States government actively worked to oppress and assimilate and eradicate Native culture. And as a Black person in America, I am angrier for my Native American friends than I am for myself. (laughs) And I feel like that's saying a lot because because it was so intentional and so proactive and so coordinated by the governing bodies of the United States. Like we can blame slavery on a lot of shitty people. We can do that. Hmm. But at least the United States government fought a war <laughs> to like say we probably shouldn't do this. Yeah. Native Americans don't they don't have the benefit of of any body that is not originated from their own people fighting and advocating for their their rights and their well being.
0: I was trying to think if I could remember any any situation. And the only like, to to maybe counter that point, but yeah, I think anytime, any situation that I can think of where somebody allied with Native Americans in a war in a battle, it was because it served their interests, mm-hmm. not necessarily the natives' interests. Yeah. And dang, Sucks. I'm gonna have to see. Yeah, might be worth looking into. Maybe maybe we're wrong. If we're wrong, let us know. But yeah, please, like I said, we weren't.
1: God, I want to be wrong. Like this is one I of those situations where I really, really want to be wrong.
0: Yeah, and I but I like I wasn't really taught well uh, this particular part of history, and so I just you know all I can think of is are times when people were at war with the Native Americans, the, the French and Indian War, for example, mm-hmm. uh, or our own battles with the U.S. military, like Wounded Knee. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. So back to the 70s. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> America is on its way out of active termination policy, uh, but the losses sustained by the Native tribes were still very real. None of the termination and assimilation policies bettered the socioeconomic status of the tribes that were subject to them. And the activists from the Red Power Movement, who had come together to fight these policies, and for many other things, uh, are now doubly convinced that their rights as indigenous people and as humans are not a priority for the U.S. government. They needed to seek a forum above the level of national government, and... I mean, well, that's the United Nations.
1: Right. I have to interject here. Again, sorry, I'm talking a lot. But um, at some point, (laughs) we are going to absolutely have to talk about the Red Power Movement. Um, I literally just learned about this yesterday. I was doing work on something completely different. And I added, I had to add some of this stuff into the podcast episode because the stories of these activists are so incredibly compelling and i'm i'm angry that i've heard about the black power movement and i haven't heard about the red power movement
0: yeah um i learned about it as we were writing for this episode myself and it's yeah absolutely we should cover it um (laughs) i again am frustrated at the lack of book learning that (laughs) we were taught about uh, Native history. Mm-hmm. And also, Robin, I don't think you have to apologize for talking on our own podcast. Well, no,
1: but like um, interrupting. <laughs> I'm, I, I don't love being interrupted. No, uh, and so I'm always conscious when I interrupt other people.
0: It's a, f- a fair point, but um, I think it is an appropriate interruption. Uh, so these Native American activists, the Red Power Movement, um, they appeal to the UN and ask them to recognize the right to decolonization. And had they succeeded, some Native American reservations would be fully independent countries today. But the UN refused to intervene, calling this a domestic issue. So the only other option was for them to advocate for Native American sovereignty as a human right. So the U.S.-based International Indian Treaty Council and the Canadian National Indian Brotherhood each earned NGO status in the U.N.'s Economic and Social Council.
1: And then, with the same bootstrap style as the first organizers of critical race theory, they secured funding from various international organizations to put on a conference in 1977. That's the conference that we mentioned earlier that had a very specific name because it had a very specific focus. Um, And that conference brought together an unprecedented mixture of participants. The UN's major agencies were represented there, as well as 33 national governments, 38 international organizations, and indigenous delegates from 14 countries in the Americas. Taking the lead during that conference was a delegation from the Lakota Nation, which is part of the Sioux people who are primarily located in the Dakotas and a little bit into Minnesota. Um, And they recommended that the group take the issues of, and this is a quote, it's kind of long here, the status of American Indians under international law, violations of United Nations covenants and agreements, treaty recognition by the UN, land reform, autonomy, and increased land base to the UN Committee on Decolonization. Basically, they were calling the US on the carpet for hundreds of years of mistreatment in front of the United Nations. They also recommended that the U.S. government be censured for genocide and forced to ratify the 1948 Genocide Convention. And they asked that treaties signed by Native Americans be recognized as international law so that they could contest any future violations of those treaties. Zero punches were pulled at that conference.
0: And while most of these aims were not formally accomplished, The conference spurred the development of a supranational monitoring and advisory system to protect the human rights of indigenous people, and it planted the idea of replacing Columbus Day with a day dedicated to indigenous peoples. Now, it took some time for the movement to gain momentum. South Dakota was the first state to rename Columbus Day in 1990, and other states slowly but surely followed suit, When the city of Berkeley, California, renamed Columbus Day in 1992, it gave the movement more visibility, as did a demonstration of about 6,000 Native people at Randall's Island, New York, in 2015. So currently, 17 states and the District of Columbia officially celebrate the day, and other states and cities do the same through proclamations and concurrent holidays. So, I, I mean... There's so much to take away from the development of this day. And I think the most important factor for me is how often through the course of the research that I was saying to myself, wow, I never knew that. Mm -hmm. Wow, that was like, how come I never learned that? Or how angry I was getting that nobody had shown me these things before or discussed these things before. And that really kind of highlights the whole point.
1: Right. Like that's. We can, after hearing that story, it, it would seem natural to just ask like, okay, so what's, what's the big deal? This seems like a pretty simple concept, right? We, we know that Columbus and the other explorers and then the colonists did really bad things intentionally and unintentionally that decimated indigenous populations and led to their loss of autonomy and land and human rights.
0: And decolonization is having a real moment in American culture. If you're not familiar with the term, decolonization has two functional meanings. First, it refers to the very practical process by which colonies become independent nations. Secondly, and most relevant to this conversation, it refers to the pursuit of cultural, psychological, and economic freedom. For Indigenous peoples, it refers to the right of Indigenous people to practice self determination over their land, their culture, their political systems, and their economic systems.
1: Here in the United States, the concept of decolonization has also taken on a more conceptual and philosophical nature, referring to separating ourselves from the idea that colonized or Euronormative perspectives and practices and identities are preferable or even correct. We've seen decolonization come up in religious contexts where activists are working to separate the white version of Christianity from the cultural context and understanding of Jewish and Middle Eastern perspectives. We're seeing it in conversations on economics where Black Americans are turning to more traditional forms of financial community like susus, which are these really cool lending circles among community members or family members. Historians are teaching us about the real roots of some of our most cherished American dishes, and how their cultural identities were co-opted by those who considered themselves to be real Americans. Anti-racist activists are working to decolonize our perspectives on speech and on bodies and on beauty standards and even hygiene. Many of us are beginning to realize how many of the things that we consider normal or even right are rooted in the traditions of colonialism and imperialism. They were forced on us by outsiders in an effort to make us more like them. And now many people, including myself, are exploring what it means to consider other cultural perspectives, whether those are cultures of our ancestors or other traditions that we respect. So it feels like a reasonable shift in focus to pull back from celebrating conquest and focus on remembering and recognizing the First Nations. But yeah, apparently it's pretty damn controversial.
0: Oh Yeah. Of course, I mean, I think part of that is because of the of the word colonizer <laughs> as a
1: it's my favorite favorite part in all of Black Panther. I love that movie so very much, but I spit soda out of my mouth when 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 uh, Martin Freeman walks in the room and sorry just turns around and she's like, colonizer, I love yeah. it I lost it
0: so I can't explain why, but that phrase actually, it, it elicits a visceral response in me. Hmm. It pisses me off because I'm, I am a colonizer, right? <laughs> I'm, I am the, the whitest dude. <laughs> that is my role in history, right? And it hurts me to be considered in that light because I personally don't want to hurt people. Mm-hmm. This is the same logic we hear from people who are like, I'm not racist. Right. And yeah, I mean, it gets me to be called that because I've never colonized anything. Right. But I have in different, smaller ways. I've never taken over over land, right? But I've played into into thought processes and into cultural norms that ostracize and other uh, the Native American population or the black population in America uh, because they're Different And they don't necessarily match the things that I've been taught uh, both explicitly and implicitly are right and correct, you know, so that's that I am part of by exp- if I express that sort of, well, there's two things right there, actually, by feeling that way, I am partaking in that colonizer mentality because i have no right to feel that way there's no reason i should feel that way just because something's different doesn't mean that it's wrong right right but i still feel like it is and then if i express that i am then furthering that sort of psychological cultural colonialism mm-hmm. um, and there are times when i was younger where i probably expressed some sort of misunderstanding or distaste for a uh, a di- a cultural difference that i just didn't understand um which you know i'm not raking myself over the coals over i think we need to make a it's okay to understand that you did something previous mm-hmm. and not feel guilty about oh, it oh yeah Right. Like you can understand that it was wrong and then also understand that it is all that could be reasonably expected of you as like a child or a a teenager or a young adult based on what you knew and what you had experienced at that time. And I think a lot of people get upset about being called a colonizer or being called racist or what have you, because they feel like they're being unfairly judged for actions they did in the past when they didn't have better contextual or cultural understanding when in the when in reality it's it's not so much a judgment for the past it's your mentality about being confronted with it moving forward you don't have to be defensive about being called out for a a toxic behavior as much as i hate the phrase toxic because i think it gets abused too much for a um demeaning mindset or thought process that you had no way of experiencing otherwise right. or knowing is what's wrong. Um, and part of the reason those mentalities persist is because we do not elevate other cultures as much as we should in American society, yeah. which is why indigenous people's day is so important. Accurate. Sorry. I just, I had been thinking about, how upset being called a colonizer (laughs) makes me you know because like i want to be a good ally and i want to help uplift other cultures i want to solve this stupid problem that we as a society have where just being different is enough to get you treated poorly and I was like, no, I'm not. Right. I'm not a colonizer. I'm the anti-colonizer. But no, no, no. It's deeper than that.
1: It is. And it's, it's like systemic racism, right? Like it, it's not okay to call out an individual person who is not doing anything to perpetuate um, these mindsets. It's not okay to call them a name. It's not okay to call them a colonizer, just like it's not okay to call me a hood rat. Like that's not acceptable, but what we do have to recognize is the ways in which every single one of us have have functioned inside of that colonized mindset, including myself. Right. We're we've internalized this your own normative perspective so much that even people of color, even indigenous people in some cases have perpetuated those mindsets. Hmm. It's not an accusation. It's a a realization and a recognition of that perspective in an effort to distance ourselves from it.
0: Yeah. And I think it gets conflated with this idea that recognizing your prior behavior wasn't the best or your prior mentalities wasn't the best is the same as hating yourself. Right. Because I see a lot of pushback against systemic racism or CRT, critical race theory. This comes up a lot. Um, where the mere fact of acknowledging that your previous mentality or previous mindsets were not necessarily the best is somehow the same as hating yourself right CRT especially uh, a lot of a lot of white parents like to say that their kids are being taught to hate themselves and that's not the case at all and the reality is kids are kids and if they get convicted about something they're probably going to feel down about themselves Mm -hmm. and so a secondary add-on effect to learning hey the way we think about things might not be good is that they might feel bad about themselves right but that's not a problem with discussing the issue it doesn't mean we shouldn't discuss the issue it means we should we should provide the mental and emotional support alongside these tougher discussions to rebuild people and to 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 get them beyond the the guilt complex and into productive like activity and action
1: yeah and and so much of it is is in the context in which we teach this right i am raising two kids and they are very aware of the terrible things that are part of america's past they're also aware of the awesome things that are a part of america's past we did terrible things we did awesome things those are all the context of our history And when you present it to children in a way that communicates, like, we are teaching you about these things so that we don't continue to do these things because they are not good things, it doesn't make them feel bad about themselves. It lets them know that even the adults around them are willing to learn from their mistakes, and that's a healthy pattern.
0: Yeah. It's for a lot of reasons that we don't have time to get into, but if I had known that adults make mistakes when I was younger i mean i still realized it at a pretty young age but right. but even as like a toddler knowing that adults aren't perfect aren't flawless would have probably changed how i approached things as just a human being but we are very off track We digress. the point being we digress it's that should be our first pin <laughs> but we digress i think we said that last time too
1: i think it has to be
0: yeah um, but the point being, really, ultimately, is what, I'm, what we're trying to drive home is that acknowledging mistakes in the past doesn't mean that you have to self-flagellate over them. When somebody points out that you have done something that was hurtful or offensive to them, our first reaction shouldn't be to feel like they are attacking us by pointing it out and then to go on the counterattack again. That just causes division and strife. Our first instinct should be to evaluate why they would feel that way, why we could arrive at that position ourselves, like why, why did I say those things if they're offensive, and to understand that adjusting our behavior going forward is just human. It's just part of life, and it's okay.
1: Exactly. So, so what 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 is like with all of that context, I need right. I need some I need an explanation of of how everyone what is the context of this defense for Christopher Columbus and Columbus Day.
0: Right. So <laughs> if we've learned anything in the past several years here in the <laughs> United States Um, it's that everything is, uh, contentious and there are some pretty actual, I think there are some pretty defensible reasons for keeping Columbus day or some form of it. And that starts with the reason it's a national holiday to begin with. See Columbus day has been celebrated in the U S like we said, since the 18th century. But it didn't become a full-blown federal holiday until I think it was 1937. Earlier, we said 1934. But if we both use the numpad to enter those dates in, it might be a flub. So we got to double check. Right. But but I think it was 1937. Um, The reasons for it morphing from a relatively small and localized celebration to a federal holiday began roughly in the 1820s. And that's when Italian immigrants began moving to the United States in rather large numbers. The rate of immigration from the 1820s only increased through the end of the millennia. Millennia? <laughs> Century? Century. Yeah, I'll get there. Century. Millennia would be a thousand years. Only increased through the 1900s, ah. um, with most coming between 1880 and the beginning of World War I in 1914.
1: With the Italians came Italian culture. And heavy Catholic influence. And if there's one trait that's pretty consistent across European and American societies, it's that we tend to not be super cool with cultures that don't really look like ours. The Italian immigrants were subject to an incredible amount of xenophobia, often being portrayed as short of stature, dark in complexion, cruel and shifty, or swarthy. The newspapers at the time really liked the word swarthy, and it is actually one of my favorite sounding words it's just fantastic but it's in this context feel. not cool yeah the coverage of italian immigrants tended to focus on how other they were from the existing american population
0: right and that swarthiness that is stressed so much becomes a real sticking point especially in the american south because there was an ongoing debate about whether or not southern italians not not united states southern but italians from like sicily mm-hmm. italians were actually white yeah and not being white in the united states at <laughs> the turn of the the 20th century is not a great place to nope. be um so as you might be able to predict by now where there was this othering this debate there was violence The situation around Italian-Americans was no different. This generalized anti-Italian sentiment sometimes led to brutal acts of violence against the Italian community, including one of the largest mass lynchings in U.S. history. Hmm. On March 14, 1891, a mob of people broke into a prison in New Orleans. They were incensed, at the murder of police commissioner David Hennessy. Hennessy had been ambushed as he walked home from work. His murderer shot him several times. He actually gave chase and returned fire, but he collapsed from his wounds before actually getting any of his assailants. He didn't die though. He lived long enough that when people asked who had killed him, he was able to identify at least he thought, his attackers. And he did so by using a derogatory term for Italians. Hmm. Now, this was all the city needed, not, the, not necessarily the city government, but the people of the city needed. Um, and despite rather weak evidence, mass arrests of Italian Americans followed. This is a fascinating story overall, and I had never heard of this one either, um, which goes to show that having the national holiday doesn't necessarily guarantee the education about why it's a national holiday. Uh, Something to keep in mind when arguing for Indigenous Peoples Day is that it would require the stress and the actual intention to use it as an education uh, vehicle and not just a federal holiday. Regardless, um, we don't have time to get into the the whole story here, but after considerable... (laughs) Convolutions, what you need to know is that the mob that broke into the prison uh, ended up trying to hunt down several Italians. Uh, there were nine that had been on trial. They were actually there post trial, uh, and they had actually been acquitted. Uh, the uh, Most of them had been acquitted, rather. The rest, the jury had requested a mistrial because they couldn't reach an agreement because the evidence was so. Shoddy. It took a long, long, long time for them to find a jury, by the way, because it was really hard to find somebody who didn't, one, know what had happened, two, <laughs> wasn't prejudiced against Italian Americans, and three, still supported the death penalty, which was going to be on the, you know, sentencing list right. for this. So they had basically already been either exonerated or proven, or at least the idea was had been supported that there wasn't great evidence to support their involvement in these murders didn't matter the mob didn't care and 11 men who were either italians you know first generation immigrants or had italian ancestry second or third generation uh, they were lynched that day simply because they were italian
1: and lest you think there was a massive public backsplash, nope, backlash, Whew. and lest you think that there was a massive public backlash, a New York Times editorial had this reaction to the lynchings. Yet, while every good citizen will readily assent to the proposition that this affair is to be deplored, it would be difficult to find any one individual who would confess that privately he deplores it very much. God. <sighs> wow. Yep. So against that backdrop of hate and violence, Italian-Americans were struggling to find a way to fit into American society. Thus, the idea of celebrating the life and accomplishments of Christopher Columbus as a way for Italian-Americans to be accepted into mainstream American society began to take hold. The first state to officially observe Columbus Day was Colorado in 1906 after considerable campaigning by Italian immigrants Angelo Noce and zero.
0: There was, there was no accent over the sea. So,
1: and and zero Mangini. Within five years, fourteen more states were celebrating the holiday, and still, it took two, almost three more decades of work by Italian Americans and the Knights of Columbus, to get Columbus Day recognized as a federal holiday. It's no small wonder then that many Italian Americans defend this holiday, and its observance. It's about more than just celebrating a famous Italian explorer. It's about more than celebrating the first domino falling that would lead to the formation of not just the United States, but dozens of countries in the Americas, for better or for worse. It's about affirming the place of Italians in American society, celebrating their contributions, and asserting their right to exist free of malice in the United States.
0: And really, devoid of of context... I totally understand why venerating Columbus could be viewed as a good idea. Misguided or not, what he did took an incredible amount of bravery. We are relatively oblivious today, most of us, surrounded by our airplanes and with GPS at our fingertips, to the dangers of setting off into uncharted waters to establish a new trading route. If... Columbus had been as unlucky as he was wrong about the size (laughs) of the globe. He very well could have ended up adrift in the ocean with no food and no way of safely navigating back home. Without refrigeration, for example, ships at the time could only carry a limited amount of food, and it's not like there were ports that they could plan on resupplying at where they were headed. Columbus was a man possessed of a dream and his determination was incredible to be willing to set forth on this voyage and then to be able to convince people to foot the bill. That is something that is in and of itself admirable.
1: And then there's the argument that, well, the tales of Columbus's horrible acts may be a little exaggerated. Much of the writings detailing Columbus's wrongdoings come from Francisco de Bobadilla, a political adversary that Columbus and Columbus's successor as governor of the West Indies. When um, when things went terribly wrong and he was removed from the the West Indies, Bobadilla is the person that they brought in to clean things up. They
0: yeah he he interviewed uh, allegedly interviewed dozens of of. Locals of natives of other Europeans in the area to understand not just Christopher Columbus, but also his brothers, right. Columbus's brothers, the um, activities in the area and what they had done. And that's where we get stories about Columbus chopping off somebody's ear or their hands or selling people into slavery. Right. Most of them anyway.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, and, and it's... When you're looking at these kinds of of stories, it's important to understand that it is hard to get accurate and corroborated information. We have Columbus's journal that we know that he wrote that describes some of the things that he did. Um, But we also then know that it was his brothers who he left to run the colony. And by all reports, they were terrible. And we don't know to what extent things got conflated. You know, when you have um, a bunch of people with the same name. It's easy to get things confused. Uh, Boba Dia's reports are largely uncorroborated. And as we should know from watching the past four years of media coverage, um, reporting from political rivals isn't exactly uh, fair and balanced, right?
0: Editorializing. There are other contemporary writers Um, who actually described Columbus's treatment of the indigenous population as fair and good, at least by the standards of the time. Even Columbus's sanctioning of slavery at Santo Domingo wasn't so much the result of Columbus's own cruelty, but rather due to political necessity and having few other options. He allowed himself to get backed into a corner, basically. Not that allowing slavery should ever be considered as a political option, but then, looking back on this, we have the benefit of living in modern society, of modern standards, morals, mm-hmm. ethics. Things get complicated when we judge historical actions by modern standards, when we judge the actions of one society by the standards of another. Columbus himself wrote about the problems with being judged by standards that are out of touch with the realities in the world that he occupied. He said, They judge me in Europe as they would a governor who had gone to Sicily, or to a city or town placed under regular government, and where the laws can be observed in their entirety without fear of ruining everything, and I am greatly injured thereby. I ought to be judged as a captain who went from Spain to the Indies to conquer a numerous and warlike people, whose customs and religion are very contrary to ours, who live in rocks and mountains, without fixed settlements, and not like ourselves, and where, by the divine will, I have placed under the dominion of the king and queen, our sovereigns, another world, through which Spain, which was reckoned a poor country, has become the richest. I got this quote from an article defending Columbus, and I find it interesting that in this article, That is written as a defense. They chose to use this particular quote. Because to my ear, it seems particularly obvious, (laughs) it's pretty obvious, that he did not think highly of the indigenous populations or their culture, that he was there as a conqueror, as somebody there to, quote, conquer a numerous and warlike people. But then maybe the defense of the man is simply that he was a man and his flaws should not be the only things we consider when determining whether or not a holiday is appropriate.
1: It's a lot. It's a lot. And again, this section, I, I had to say, I didn't know that about the struggles of Italian Americans, especially in the South. Um, I mean, I do know that basically every people group who has come to America at some point in time that didn't match the original Anglo-Saxon group that came over struggled. Um, and I, I know that there has been a long history and controversy when it comes to defining whiteness and that definition has changed um, over and over throughout the years. And I I definitely think that it's appropriate to recognize that struggle and that pright, that plight. I still struggle to... Accept the idea that that can't be done without, uh, without couching that in in the the conquest of Christopher Columbus.
0: Yeah, I I agree. I, Columbus is even at best a problematic figure. Yeah, and it's telling when your defenses of him start out with. Well, he was flawed, but. Exactly. Nobody's perfect. Right. And I understand that. But some people are maybe better than others. And it's limiting to Italian-Americans, to Italians in general, to be like, well, Columbus is the Italian. Right. Right? There are Can
1: we talk about tons, Galileo, maybe?
0: <laughs> right. There are tons of Italians that are...
1: Uh,
0: Maybe not perfect, but definitely better than Columbus. Right. <laughs> in, in terms of their impact on cultures. Yeah. Uh on the world. Um So yeah, I I am mean, not here to, to, to make a final judgment on this, but as much as I understand the importance of of the holiday. Italian Americans. Mm-hmm. I think. I think the importance of the holiday. Has sort of like. Uh, transferred to the man. Yeah. And the reasoning for the holiday. Has become. The underlying. Foundation. Of the defense of the man. And. It would. It might be best to decouple the two things yeah and to understand the importance of italian americans of italians in general to the world and their contributions and also separate the this sort of veneration or at least un uncontextual i don't know what the word i'm looking for is uh, discussion of of columbus yeah if we're going to talk about them let's talk about everything let's talk about the good and the bad let's talk about the man and the warts you know
1: exactly i think every every culture especially every culture that has contributed to the america that we know deserves to be celebrated and recognized for the contributions to uh, our very incredible country and i think that when we put the focus on situations like columbus day and we celebrate him discovering America, we remove the conversation that we can have about all of the incredible things that Italians have contributed to uh, what we consider to be essentially American culture.
0: Right. And I think there are some places that are actually moving towards calling it Italian-American day. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I did see Um, that. I
0: did see that. Which I think captures the the intent way better than calling it Columbus Correct. Day. And le- before somebody goes off about erasing history or something, not calling the day Columbus Day is not going to erase Columbus. Yeah. I mean, yeah. We have Columbia, we have the District of Columbia, we have Columbia University. Which Columbus do you think those places are named after?
1: Right. And there's um like the legacy of the man's actions is still it like it's still alive and well today good and also very very bad bad. so there's no chance that by not recognizing a day for the man as a federal united states holiday um we are going to lose out on the history or the terrible Terrible song that we all sang in elementary
0: school. I don't know the song. We're not talking about it. Um, one last thing. Interestingly, in the in the defense articles that I was reading, a point was made that if we're going to call it Indigenous Peoples Day, we need to be specific about which Indigenous people. And it was used as a weapon because they were talking about, well, do you want to talk about the Aztecs who uh, practiced uh, ritualistic human sacrifice, or do you want to talk about? Um, uh, shoot, I can't remember the other group that they talked about, but basically that practiced cannibalism and particularly enjoyed babies and fetuses as a treat. And Ugh, like, what about-ism. so one, yes, this highlights a, a, a very bad, a very critical logical flaw, whataboutism. We see it all the time in modern politics. It is a weak argument to make um, because it presupposes that there is right and wrong in everything. And that two things can't just be wrong together. Yeah,
1: exactly. (laughs) Um,
0: And it's funny because in my conversations with some people, they've been like, well, what about when so-and-so did this? And I I always go, yeah, that was wrong too. Mm -hmm. And the reaction universally is laughter. As if somehow I have undermined my own point and it's like no they're just both wrong
1: right this idea that that two wrong things cannot exist in the same space or two right things cannot exist in the same space this ideological binarism is um it is useless in conversations like this
0: right and and humanity in general we're really predisposed to creating these dichotomies like, everything exists in pairs, it feels like. We have good and bad, you know, Republican and Democrat. Whichever side you fall on, the other side is the opposite. Even if it's not, like, necessarily true, yeah. they can just both be wrong or, or both be right. Like, it's weird to me that we do that. Um, so that stood out to me. And then the other thing that stood out to me is that they were – these defenses were practicing intellectual colonialism <laughs> – In using those arguments because they're saying these cultures did these things that we, Western society, have agreed is bad and wrong. But those societies weren't existing by our standards. They didn't use our morals and our ethics. They used their own. And who are we to be like, our system is superior to your system? Right. That is literally... What we're talking about, decoupling that, that intellectual superiority right. from our analysis of the action of other cultures that we just don't understand.
1: And dude, that's hard to sit with. It is hard to sit with the idea that something that sounds so repulsive to us is it is the right of that culture, that people group to choose for themselves That sounds awful and horrible and terrible for us to have to sit with. Um, But it is also important that we recognize that while European and Western society may have come to the the conclusion that that is bad um, on their own, also we don't know that we're Indigenous people groups allowed to continue to develop their own societies, we don't know what conclusions they would have come to on their own. So it, it is not... Right. It, it, again, we just... We can't... We have to start to decouple from that, Euro normative perspective, and yes. it's super duper hard.
0: It's very hard, especially because a lot of what we believe about right and wrong has its roots in in religion, mm-hmm. in what we've been taught about the sanctity of the human soul and the human body. But if you if your culture practiced a different religion then you your concepts of what is ethically good and what is ethically wrong when it comes to these things are going to be different and who's to say that the european practice of burying our dead or cremating our dead isn't considered equally offensive and horrific mm-hmm. to these other cultures yeah. And the ultimate expression of spirituality is uh, to them something that looks like cannibalism to us. We just it's so difficult to break yourself out of the of the wow, that's horrible initial reaction. So when you see arguments like that you have to be able to recognize that that is applying a standard to a group that never knew about the standard and it's a little unfair to expect them to meet these other standards. Yeah,
1: Exactly.
0: So, now that somebody is definitely going to say that we endorse cannibalism or something, which we did not say, uh, (laughs) um... If you think that we are so far off base and would love to light us up about that and just tell us how terrible we are, you can do that at firesidebreakdowns.com. And there you can find our show notes, you can find all of our episodes, you can find links to our social medias, and you can find a link to our Patreon. Uh, We are currently trying to reach a goal of $400 a month so we can hire somebody to do the editing. for us so to buy us a little more breathing room so we have a better schedule that we can follow personally it would really 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 help us frankly um so if you've been thinking about doing it now is the time um we would again we are greatly appreciative of our patrons so far and uh it's just wild to me that we even have them so we (laughs) Would love your support. Yes. I'm going to shamelessly plug Shameless that. Shameless plug. Yeah. And if you don't want to be a patron, totally understand, leave us a review. Mm-hmm. We need those reviews. We haven't actually asked for them in a long time. Unfortunately, it looks like the drive for reviews that we tried to do in our one year wasn't exactly successful.
1: Yeah. Um, we, we
0: were. I don't think we got any reviews. We, well, okay. and
1: like literally our consistency is... We struggle with follow-through sometimes, you and I, a little bit.
0: Well, yeah, but I mean. That's okay. Whatever. But yeah, so yeah, Yeah. we desperately need those two things to keep this thing going. We've been doing this for a year and a half now. Mm, We're getting close. Something like that, getting close in there. Yeah. Love it. Holy cow. Burning the midnight oil, guys. Yeah, we is.
1: Or the pre-work oil.
0: Yeah, today it's not. Today it's the early morning oil. Because we got to midnight last night and we were like, nope. Quit. Yeah. All right. So take us to some good news. Let's rolling. talk
1: about some good news. I love it when we can actually find relevant good news for the topic. Um, so the U.S. Senate voted on Tuesday to confirm Lauren King as a federal judge in Seattle. King is a member of the Oklahoma-based Muscogee Nation. And she is only the sixth Native American to serve as a federal judge in the federal judiciary's 232-year history. She is the fourth active Native American federal judge and the first ever in Washington state. Um, if you, like me, are doing a little bit of math there, it means that we currently have four of the six ever Native American judges as active judges. Huh. Um, the cool thing about this is King's confirmation was decidedly bipartisan. Six Republicans joined with Democrats to confirm King, including Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, and Chuck Grassley, was a little surprised. Just why? I know. Uh, prior to this appointment, King chaired a Native American law practice group at the firm Foster Garvey in Seattle. And she has also served as a pro tem appellate judge for the Northwest Intertribal Court System, Since 2013, she is the second federal judge of Native American heritage to be confirmed under President Biden. Lydia Grigsby, who is also black, was confirmed to serve as a federal district judge in Maryland in June. Unfortunately, that is the largest number of Native American nominees to ever win confirmation under a single president. (laughs) Yeah, at this point, half of the active Native American federal judges were appointed under President Biden. Previously, Presidents Carter, Clinton, Obama, and Trump have also had one Native American nominee confirmed. Obviously, we need to do better. But the fact that four of the five most recent presidents have had Native nominees confirmed bodes well, I think, for the future. And that is absolutely something that we can celebrate.
0: Yeah, I agree. Let's see if we can pump those numbers up a little right. bit, though, and maybe accelerate the uh, You know, making our courts and our government representative of the population that they are supposed to be serving. I think that's everything for today. We got to get to it. Lots of work to do today for both of us. Lots of work for like actual paychecks so we can actually dedicate our time to doing this. So uh, we will talk to everybody one week from today and we look forward to it. Until that time, everybody take care of each other.